This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. So today is the 4th of July, and they usually ask me to give the talk on the 4th of July so that um, the seniors can take a day off. (laughs) But I'm happy to do this, no problem. Uh, it's a good time to talk. Um, the 4th of July, in Independence Day. Um, you know, uh, I remember many, many years ago, I thought, Interdependence Day, that's what it is. That's what we should be celebrating. Uh, I have no problem with Independence Day. Independence Day is very good. You know, we're independent from uh, the tyranny of Um, being under the thumb of a distant country over the waters and uh, and a king. Of course, democracy, you know, and we we developed something called democracy. People are calling calling it an experiment. I never thought of it as an experiment. I always thought of it as that's the way it is. You know, we're we're a... um, uh, uh, when I was born, 1929, um, we only, I only had knew one president until I was in junior high school. Roosevelt was the president and he promoted democracy. Uh, and that's what I thought we were all about. You know, I thought the military was great and the presidency was great and what he was doing was great, restructuring the country, you know, bringing back so-called prosperity. And uh, then everything changed after the Second World War was over. And democracy has been fighting for its existence ever since. And right now we're at the great crossroads. I don't want to tell you who to vote for. Just vote. Please do that. That's the only way that we can make things move without creating a revolution. Uh, uh, There are two words. One is revolution. The other is revolt. So when we talk about revolution, we're usually talking about revolt. A revolution is where you start somewhere in a circle and go around the circle and return to where you started. <laughs> anyway, this morning I looked at uh, my mail and I found a, um, uh, a little uh, a, um, letter from uh, Dai Honsan Eheji, from the abbot of Eheji. I don't, he didn't say anything about the 4th of July but he did talk about interdependence. He was talking about, I have it right here. He sent us a prayer, a prayer for uh, uh, all of us um, uniting to um, take care of the uh, coronavirus. And it's quite, it's quite nice. I don't want to read the whole letter. It's, a, it's not 
terribly long, but I don't like to read the letters when you're not giving a talk. But here's the prayer. I have to do everything backwards here. Um, that's a really nice, this thing, this thing is nice. Uh, looks like somebody's brain. <laughs> so that's the prayer. So we hang that up in Zendo. <clears throat> uh, and I just want to read you a little bit of this letter. It's very sweet. <clears throat> he said, in, in uh, the 20th century, I got to put on my glasses. <clears throat> the 21st century, our world seemed through globalization to have achieved so much in progress and development. And now in a short period of time, a virus has spread over the entire earth, uh, revealing a, a fragility we had not imagined. Um, so then he says, um, Master Dogen, the founder of AAG, taught that <clears throat> the realm of birth and death is the life of Buddha. This teaching means this life received in this world of inconceivable interdependent affinities, which is nice, must be lived to the fullest as the life of Buddha. <clears throat> so, um, at the Heiji, at the Koso Daishi Honzon, um, Honho, the Assembly of Ceremonies, uh, expressing gratitude to the eminent ancestor, Master Dogen, we dedicated our wisdom in order to transform these great difficulties into small difficulties and to pray that the world return to peace. We hope that with all our hearts, that in all countries, this pandemic will pass, that people will recover from their illnesses and the spirits of those who have lost their previous lives will be at peace. Um, may we join our hearts and walk forward together as people who enjoy their lives as the life of Buddha. So that's kind of like their prayer. And sharing that with us is very sweet. <clears throat> so uh, birth and death is um, the life of Buddha, of course. <laughs> um, so how do we uh, walk in the path of the Buddhist path during a time like this? Or actually, any time. You know, before the pandemic, we were all sitting zazen in the zendo, doing service, you know, uh, relating to each other, serving meals, having sashin, blah, blah, blah. Wonderful. And then suddenly, we're out on our own. Uh, under strict rules and regulations. Uh, in in uh, At Pay Street, um, all of us are, um, I, I got these explosions going on in my head, sorry. <laughs> uh, 
living under one roof. But in Berkeley, where my Zendo is, um, we don't all we have eight or ten, eight, eight residents who live under more or less a roof, and we have everybody else living outside. And so the people living outside have to find how to practice without all the accoutrements that we're so used to. We're thrown out on our own, so to speak, uh, which uh, some people lament, but I find really good. You know, Zen is just Buddhism, of course, but uh, it has a certain way of practice. That's why we call it Zen. It's just a word. Uh, our practice is to find our way under all kinds of conditions, to recognize the conditions, to face the conditions, to embrace the conditions, and to be free from the conditions at the same time. So I'm really happy about, I'm not happy about the, the virus at all, but uh, I'm happy that everybody is thrown out of their usual uh, um, conditioned way of practice and finding their way by themselves, by ourselves. Of course, we zoom, we zoom each other, you know, which is fine. I like that. But basically, our day-to-day -day practice is individual practice, which is um, very common in the Buddhist world. People have solo retreats. So I look at my life as having right now as a solo retreat, which we don't usually do at Zen Center. And um, which is frowned upon actually by the Japanese. Japanese uh, Zen practice is together practice. Um, and uh, individual practice is conceived sometimes as uh, ego practice. You know, you're doing something for your own benefit. We should be doing something for our own benefit, but what we do for our own benefit should benefit others as well. So we should be included. You know, sometimes we say, uh, I just devote my life to everybody else, right? but you are also include should also be included in everybody else. Um, there's the story of the 10 monks and they were counting to see how many there were and they said, will you, they put, Joe, will you count us and see if, we're, if how many there are? And he started counting, he said, nine. There are nine of us. And then everybody just scratched their head and he said, do it again. And he counted again, and there were only nine. And then some little guy said, what about you? <laughs> so, um, what we, Although our practice is for the benefit of everyone, we are also included. And when you, when your practice is, uh, what we do actually is dedicate our individual practice to the benefit of all beings. That's called the difference between Hinayana and some other kind of practice, which I don't want to call Hinayana. <laughs> People think umbrage. When you say Hinayana, you're prejudiced, but that's not so. Our practice, as Suzuki Roshi used to say, is Mahayana, 
was Hinayana practice, actually, was a Mahayana attitude, mind. Hinayana practice. Hinayana means uh, small, but I, I think of it as narrow, uh, um, where you're limiting your practice to a certain kind of uh, uh, um, bare essential, barely essential practice. That To me, that's what hinayana is. It's narrow, not small. Uh, and Mahayana practice wide and more, you know, inclusive of various things, people and, and attitudes and so forth. Uh, so both are important and both are necessary for a complete practice. So this leads me to, to um, what I really want to talk about today. Um, Master Dogen says, I don't want to you know, lay it on him, but he says, uh, without a teacher, forget about practice. That's pretty strict. I would say without a teacher, you're just kind of wandering around. Uh, so uh, I remember back in, I, I started to practice in 1964 with at Sokoji on 1881 Bush Street, an old synagogue. This is a Japanese had bought right after the war, the Second World War. The, the Japanese who were in internment in America saved their money and bought the old Sokoji uh, temple, which was uh, one of the first synagogue, maybe the first synagogue in uh, San Francisco. Sokoji, so means uh, San Francisco. San Francisco Temple, Soko G, G is Temple. Um, and uh, so the Japanese bought the old Sokoji Temple, and when they needed a, um, a priest, and to make a long story short, Suzuki Roshi became the priest. That's why he came to America. Uh, that's the uh, one reason. The other reason is that he was very interested in seeing what was going on here. And if he could maybe do something. And um, uh, <laughs> a lot of Jewish people, Jewish boys and girls who um, uh, uh, turned the Jewish temple into a Japanese temple. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, and also pastry was a girl, a, Jap a, a Jewish woman's, young Jewish woman's hostel. Um, and uh, so we tend to inherit these temples. So anyway, um, so Suzuki Roshi was our teacher, and um, he attracted people. Not he didn't do anything because of who he was. Somehow, people were drawn to his teaching. 
and what he taught was Zazen. And he didn't really teach anything else. He wanted to keep our practice as simple as possible. Nowadays, you know, after Suzuki Roshi died, um, uh, uh, his American descendants um, expanded Zen Center. Uh, we actually bought this um, uh, San Francisco Zen Center um, while he was still alive, of course. And uh, there was a lot of hustle and bustle and everybody was energized, you know. When, when you're building something, people get energized. I, I always noticed that when we needed um, carpenters, they appeared as Zen students. And some of them continued and others, when they finished their, their carpentry jobs, kind of disappeared back into the woodwork, so to speak, no pun intended. <laughs> so, um, uh, Suzuki Roshi was our teacher, and the way he taught was as a kind of apprenticeship. Um, this is um, pretty typical of Japanese um, Zen practice is apprenticeship. Master Dogen says, uh, you should have, if you're a teacher, you should have one, at least one and a half students. <laughs> um, my understanding of the teacher-student relationship is uh, a teacher is like, you know, we, when we have Dharma transmission, that the student who is being transmitted takes the place of Vairochana Buddha. I am now Vairochana Buddha. We think, oh, that's pretty egotistical of you. <laughs> I am now Vairochana Buddha, seated on the lotus throne of a thousand petals, and all my students. Are, are are seated on each one is seated on the leaf. <laughs> you see that expressed in mandalas. Um, so the the teacher is like a rotating varojana in a sense, not really doing anything, just emitting light, just emitting light. And the light is, is picked up by the students. And uh, apprenticeship, you know, the, the nice thing about the apprenticeship is that you live with the teacher. I mean, now it's, it's difficult to do that, but in the olden days, it, it was easier but still it's possible. I always felt that I was an apprentice to my teacher, Suzuki, and he recognized that. And, you know, he didn't really, he, he did teach a lot. He, he gave talks, 
about Buddhism and so forth. Um, and we learned that way. But what we, the way we really learned from the teacher was that uh, we watched how he moved, we watched how he sat down, how he stood up, how he handled his robes, how he put on his zoris, which we call flip-flops now. <laughs> he never wore shoes. He didn't tie his shoes. <laughs> never wore shoes. Uh, and we received the teaching through our pores, through the way we interacted and so forth. Uh, the teaching, teaching, which is like speaking about the time, that's all good stuff. But the main teaching was always how you interact with your teacher and with your surroundings. How you interact with your teachers, with him, with your main teacher, and and we also had other teachers as well. We had some good teachers in those days, back in the sixties. Suzuki uh, passed in seventy one, December. The way he passed, you know, I always like to talk about this story, is that he had cancer, and he was ailing. And for the last, in 71, it was not so easy to have contact with him, especially at Tassajara. And because he, he was unable to move, to move around like that. <clears throat> so, um, uh, we had to run things by ourselves, pretty much. But we had, people came to help him, like, um, um, Chino Roshi, Chino Sensei, we called him. I call him the mystic. <laughs> Suzuki Roshi, you know, loved him. We all loved him. He was a great person. Um, he was the mystic. Suzuki Roshi said, we don't, we don't, in our practice, we don't pay much attention to mystical stuff. <laughs> But um, because he was very pragmatic, but actually Suzuki Yoshi was a mystic too, but he would never admit it. <laughs> he had mystical tendencies, um, which was actually his underlying persona was like that, but he would never admit that. So, um, and then we had Katagiri Roshi, who was Katagiri Sensei, and Yoshimura uh, Sensei. Uh, and each one of them had a different way of teaching. And so you could see that uh, they, they were exemplifying their teaching, you know. Um, Suzuki Roshi would come out of his little, at Sokoji, he had his office next to the Zendo which is a very nice room at the Sokoji, <coughs> 1881 Bush Street. You can walk by there sometime. Um, and he would come out of his office every morning, offer the incense, bow, uh, set up on the altar, which is quite a wide altar, and Kadigiri would sit 
on the opposite side. And they went exemplified, although they both had dormant transmission, but uh, Scott and Gary had dormant transmission from a different teacher, different lineage. Uh, he came the year before I did to help Suzuki Roshi. And um, uh, he did this every day, every morning and every afternoon. And you got the feeling that um, he was sustained by his routine, which I later uh, called his mantra. The mantra was not uh, repeating some word over and over again. Of course, our mantra is the, the Heart Sutra, <laughs> which we repeat over and over again. But um, his mantra was in his actions, the way he moved and the way he um, did his kind of routine, but you never felt that it was a routine. You never felt, and his formality, you never felt that his formality was formal. It was always an informal formality. So it was a living thing and not a dead thing. And Suzuki Roshi's attitude was always to, br to bring everything to life. Everything you do, bring it to life. And that way you yourself become, uh, uh, bring yourself to life as well. Um, and he felt the same way about precepts. You know, we have 16 precepts and how you keep those precepts alive and not just dead stuff. Not just following everything by rote or by, you know, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. But how you, how you, the, we bring the precepts to life as our way of expression from inside, not from following rules. He understood and respected the rules that we call precepts. But for him, real precepts are not dead precepts, but the live precepts, which he called our inmost request. That the precepts come from inside. I wouldn't say not from outside, because inside and outside, are, they are inside and outside, but they're also one thing. Inside and outside are one piece. So to let our attitude, our attitudes are our precepts, not just following rules. He also said that um, uh, if you just follow the rules, that's called heresy <laughs> in Mahayana. <laughs> Heresy is a bit, kind of an extreme word. There could be other terms, you know. Big mistake. <laughs> so, um, the teacher, getting back to teacher-student, um, uh, 
the teachers like, well, I would say, I like to talk this way, that, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, our body is a solar system. You know, we are copies of the solar, of the, of the solar world where um, cosmic beings and our, our, uh, our con the way we're constructed is like a small universe. Each one of us is like a small universe. There's the sun called the solar plexus and all the satellites of our body and mind. Our, our hands and feet and, and arms and legs and body and so forth. These are the planetary satellites that rotate around the solar plexus. And the teacher is at the middle of our solar plexus called practice. And we are the satellites of the, around, moving around the teacher. And that's how we get the practice. That's how we get the, the understanding. So it's really good to have a good teacher. People, I, sometimes young students will come and they'll practice for a month, you know, trying to get their legs in place. They say, can I teach? <laughs> We're all teaching something, right? <laughs> sometimes good teaching is like, uh, don't do that, you know, don't follow that guy. <laughs> So what are the qualities of a good teacher and what are the qualities of a good student? Uh, qualities of a good student should be the same as the qualities of a good teacher. So when you study the qualities of a good teacher, you start to embody those qualities. The quality, the teacher can't give you something. The teacher can only show you something. So you observe the teacher. That's what our practice is always observing the teacher. And we always talk about the teacher, you know. And when we talked about Suzuki Roshi with each other, it was always with. Uh, great wonder and great respect and awe because he didn't do anything spectacular. He really didn't do anything spectacular. His ordinary activity was spectacular, just like our ordinary activity is spectacular, but we don't realize it. This is the problem. So when you, Suzuki Roshi narrowed his practice down, it was very narrow practice, but it was great expansive practice at the same time. The more he narrowed down his practice, his activities, the greater and, and, and more expansive he became. That's, that was the mystery of Suzuki Roshi. The simplest, you know, he was never in a hurry. You never felt that he was in a hurry to do anything. He was always right in time, right in time, always in time. And uh, always in good humor. He would scold people 
but it always laugh at the same time. <laughs> so everything was very serious and nothing was serious at all at the same time. So, because everyone trusted him, Zen Center expanded greatly from sitting in the pews <laughs> at the AG, because uh, they had a big auditorium at, at um, not AG, at um, Sokoji. They had a big auditorium, and he started sitting in the pews in the auditorium uh, until they gave us a room upstairs for Zendo, because people wanted that. He just did what people wanted. He didn't initiate stuff. People said, well, can we do this? Can we do that? You know, can we? Um, what about a monastery? <laughs> well, you want a monastery? Okay. He just inspired people. You know, I was thinking about, well, what is, what is the main thing about our practice? Where, where does that come from? And I thought, inspiration. Without inspiration, it's just kind of dead. You're just doing stuff. Uh, it's hard, you know. Young people today are looking for something, of course. And we were looking for the same thing back in the 60s and 50s um, and 70s. <laughs> uh, But our teacher, you know, the way the practice was set up was that Sukiyoshi was the teacher. And if you wanted to practice, you came to Zen Center, which was not, you know, it was not a business. It was not a corporate, corporate business at that time. <laughs> you come to Zen Center and you practiced with the teacher and his students. And that's how you got the practice. That's how you got the understanding. So nowadays, I'm not sure that young people are so attracted to a teacher. They have to be inspired by somebody to stay with the practice, because there's so many practices now. At that time, back in the '60s, Zen Center was the only thing going. But now. Uh, there are more and more various kinds of practices, right? Um, so uh, in order for to have a viable practice, I'm for me, I like the teacher student relationship, the apprentice mm. style of relationship with a single teacher, which doesn't mean that there are not other teachers. You know, we used to talk back in the 60s about, and the 70s, <laughs> about um, shopping. You know, you have your basket and you go to this center and you get some of those eggs, you know, and you go to that other center and you get some stuff, you know, and you, and you put it all in your basket. But when you look in your basket, you don't really have anything. The only way you can have, really have the, the, the true Dharma is to do one thing thoroughly. This, uh, and the more I've practiced over 50 years, um, 
you know, I'm just uh, over and over again. It's proven to me that to stay with one thing and do one thing thoroughly without adding stuff to it. People always want to add stuff to it because we have this expanding mind that wants to, it's curious and, and wants to add stuff to our practice because our practice is so bare. Real practice is really bare. <laughs> it's always that way in Buddhism. The monks' practices are really, in India, you know, you own, monk owns nothing except his robe. Uh, a, a little sieve uh, um, uh, to, to strain your water from the bugs, you know. <laughs> uh, and you, you, in, in India, you could not carry any money. You could not dig in the ground and grow crops and stuff like that. You just had to, because your practice depends on your virtue. Virtue and value. She talked about virtue and value. Value is comparative. It's like everything, you know, uh, it's like going into the dime store, you know, and you, uh, and you, this thing is more valuable than this thing, and so we pay more and less and so forth. That's not practice. I mean, it, it's included in practice, but practice is virtue, which means the, the, um, the incomparability of each individual with the source. No one can compare to you. You, are, you and the universe are what you are and there's no comparison. So uh, when you can find that, then you can teach. You don't, it has nothing to do with value. You, you know, no matter who you are, you yourself are totally invaluable. And you, one person cannot be compared to another. This is called horizontal wisdom. Vertical wisdom is when you compare yourself to others. <laughs> you can't help it. We can't help comparing ourselves to others. You know, that's life, dualistic life. But our non-dualistic life is horizontal. Everything is equal. We're all equal. And at the same time, we're all different. So if we all say, if we say, well, we're all equal and not realize that we're all different, honor the differences, that's dualistic. We're both equal and individually different. So our equality is our virtue. But so is our individuality. And the less we have the possibility of true joy is possible. We, you know, we say, uh, in order to practice, you have to have food, you have to have clothing, you have to have some place to rest your head. And, um, uh, a teacher. 
maybe a teacher or a sangha, you know, people that you practice with. Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, right? Three uh, legs of the pot. You know, we have three legs of the pot, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. If you only have Buddha and Dharma, the pot lists. If you only have two of the legs or one, you know, if you have none of the legs, <laughs> you fall into the fire. So the legs hold us up, you know, and then there's the fire underneath um, uh, cooks us. We say the cauldron is uh, 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 cooks sages. <laughs> so you got to get into the pot and get cooked. And uh, the pot is our practice. Putting ourselves into the pot is our practice. And the legs of the pot that hold the legs that hold the pot up, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So without all three, it's not complete practice. So the other aspect is called commitment. This is the problem of our age with young people now is commitment. Because there's so many eggs to put in your basket that you go from one egg to another. Doesn't hold up, but you go, you go from one practice to another and you, you play with that for a while. I don't say, when I say play, means do something. I remember when I was in grammar school, we used to have these fire extinguishers and on the walls, in a little glass case, and there was a sign that said, turn upside down to play. We would laugh at So the cauldron is very important. That's the, that's the, the uh, confinement from which you are cooked. So um, you put all your eggs in one uh, cauldron and hard boiled. <laughs> Take him out just in time. Anyway, the good teacher does not hang on to his students. The purpose of the teacher is to help each student to find themselves. As soon as a teacher wants something from their students, um, uh, that's a bad situation. The teacher is, you know, expressing the light of the Dharma. And as soon as the teacher wants something from the students, um, uh, the relationship is over. So you can't want anything. And a good teacher, you know, has a mind like a mirror. Just, uh, somebody walks by and, and they may stay for a while and then they leave, but there's no, the, the, the mirror is not attached to any of the reflections. 
mirror just does what the mirror does. The teacher just does what he does or she does. And if the students um, uh, are attracted to that, that's fine. That's good for as long as it needs to be. But nobody can say how long it needs to be. I mean, the teacher may say, well, you left, but you weren't ripe yet, but that's life, you know. Uh, you can't save people. We say, we vow to save all such things, right? That's good. But actually, it's not me that saves them. So you can rest easy. Some people don't like that. They say, I take this vow to save all sentient beings, but I can't do that. So I'm not going to practice. They do say that, some people. But that's a big mistake because you vow to save all sentient beings. That's enough. You don't have to go out and save them. Everybody has to save themselves. That's Buddhism. Everyone has to say, so the teacher is an example for people. That's why the teacher has to be pretty good. The teacher has to exemplify what they're talking about. And nobody can do that perfectly. Suzuki Roshi did it very well. But he also made mistakes. He always acknowledged his mistakes. And so we didn't see them as mistakes. We just saw them as practice. When we acknowledge our mistakes, we're always forgiven, you know, because um, our life is life of mistakes. Mistakes. That's we live in their in their world of mistakes. <laughs> no, if you look at it. One mistake after another. So our, we live the life of one mistake after another. But we forgive each other. If, if if we ask for forgiveness, you always forgive them. And we're starting over all the time. But gradually, even though maybe one step forward and two steps back, <laughs> little by little, uh, something works. If we stay with the practice through thick and thin, that's called practice. People say, oh, I don't feel so good today, so I think I'll sit that in. Or I feel really great, so I'm going to sit that in. has nothing to do with your feelings. It does have something to do with your We're not saying that feelings are bad or wrong, but zazen beyond our feelings. It's got to be, so it has to be something beyond our feelings because our feelings are very fickle and uh, we get ruled by our feelings and our thoughts. We get, we become the victim of our thoughts and feelings. If you think about it, that's why we have something called psychiatry. So zazen is beyond. We have this wonderful practice called zazen, which is to let go of everything. 
come back to zero. And then from zero, we can add one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. But the bottom line is zero. So that we don't, we, we have the opportunity to not be victims of our thoughts and feelings. We think we're going to think our way out of this. <laughs> we're not going to think our way out of this at all. What, what, what happens after you die? Well, bullshit. You don't know. We don't know anything. You know some little things, you know, but <laughs> we have to know certain things. And some things are very profound, no doubt. But the profundity is in the simplicity. There's a koan. Everything is one. Where does the one go? Anyway, I don't know what time it is. Time. Seems like it's time. <laughs> so thank you for inviting me to give this talk. Um, there's so many things to talk about, but you know, it all comes down to just this. Simplicity. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma Talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.